Uh, good morning. Just want to say a quick word of appreciation to our band and worship team. Appreciate you guys leading us all the way, all the time every week. A lot of work into that, and all the guys at the tech booth. Uh, takes a lot to make happen what we do around here, and so uh, it's appreciated, guys. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, and we are glad you're here. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be reading from the Old Testament book of Ezra. Ezra. And we'll be looking at chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and get your Bible, open that up. Uh, you may want to turn to the table of contents before uh, you start flipping pages. That'll help you get there a little more quickly. Well, I uh, had the opportunity to do a little bucket list thing this past summer. And can I get it on this one too, guys? Jerry? It looks like it's on, but it's not on. Now we're good. Thank you. Um, so anyway, my bucket list thing was I, I had been wanting to run a marathon for a long time. And uh, I was fi- finally able to get that done. And it was a very special experience for me. And um, if you don't know the background of that, I found it fascinating. I want to say a quick word about that. Um, because when I would tell somebody I'm about to run a marathon, they would sometimes ask me this question. And if you, if you did, you're not alone. A lot of people ask me this question. How far is your marathon? And the answer to that is they are all the same length. If it's a marathon, it's 26.2 miles. And so there's not like five-mile marathons, ten-mile marathons, and so on. They're all the same. And it all comes from this story that happened around 490 B.C., and I found it even more relevant for today because we're going to be talking about this kind of time frame in ancient history, 490 B.C. This is a day when the Persians are ruling the world. They've overcome everybody, and um, they are now making their way west to Europe, and they're looking to have entry into Europe and overcome Europe, and they begin with Greece. And there's a big battle that happens at a place called Marathon. And there's like 40,000 Persians and 600 ships coming against about 10,000 Greeks. And it's going to look bad for the Greeks, you would say, just from a bird's eye view. But uh, as the story goes, uh, the Greeks got all rallied up and and they got all uh, uh, fired up about how they were going to come against their enemy and we're told that they ran into this large battlefield, this large uh, area uh, about as wide across as the Persians were, but of course they weren't as deep because it was like 10,000 to 40,000. And they just started running right at the enemy. Didn't wait for them to come to them, but they took it to the enemy. And they fought ferociously, and they fought well, and they began to overcome the Persians, and the Persians... Um, began to disperse. And when they did, there was a messenger that was sent back to Athens to give message to the king, we have victory. And that messenger ran the 26.2 miles from Marathon to Athens. And thus the the legend began to perpetuate itself uh, that... When he arrived, he gave his message to the king. That was his last breath, and he died. Uh, Around 
the late 1800s when the modern Olympics were being re-inaugurated, restarted, and they started in Athens again. Uh, Greece decided they wanted to do something that would be noteworthy and uh, memorable and kind of have a historic touch to the relaunching of the Olympic Games. And so they created an event where they had everybody run from the Olympic Stadium in Athens out to Marathon. It was 26.2 miles, and that was the creation of that event. Now, I say all that to say this because it has everything to do with what we're talking about today. If you wanted to go out and run a marathon today, 26.2 miles, most of you would have a hard time with that, right? I would have a hard time with that today because I haven't been training like I was a couple of months ago. The point is that even though you have difficulty with that today, with some training, with some preparation, you could do it. I did it. So you could do it. And you go, well, why in the world would I want to? I mean, only, you know, somebody that needs to have their head examined would want to go out and run that far. I understand that. But here's the point. There are some things that you want to do. There are some things that you want to accomplish. And it's going to call for a marathon-type perseverance for you to be able to do it. Some of you are in some relational challenges. It's called marriage. It just goes with the territory. That's a marathon. Unless you've bought into the cultural message about serial uh, marriages, and I, you know, I'll have you during this phase of my life, and then I'll get on to another thing, and then I'll get on to another. If you've rejected that cultural message and you're back to a lifetime relationship, friends, that's a marathon. And it will um, call for a perseverance that uh, can be very, very difficult at times, very, very trying. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about other people's marriages, not yours, because I can tell you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But if you have children, it's a marathon. You have to outlast them, right? Because they will continue to try to push limits and test uh, boundaries and see what they can do and, you know, begin to spread their wings and so on like that. And we love it. It's great. It just kills us. So uh, we have to press on and press on. It's a, it's a marathon. Uh, some of you are in that kind of thing with respect to work or with a career. And you're trying to get into the uh, area of work that you want to get into or you're trying to accomplish what you feel like you're supposed to be accomplishing with respect to your work. And it's it's a marathon. I've been having allergies all week. I'm going to have a hard time this morning. I'm sorry for that. And um, Jerry or Sam, whoever's doing it, if I start coughing, knock me off. The microphone. <laughs> Sam brought up this gun. He was knocked that guy off. Okay. So, we're going to get into uh, what the Bible has to say about these kinds of things. Because, just to remind you, we're in this world for a reason. We're in this world for a purpose. God created all that there is including ourselves, for high, holy, eternal purposes, some of which is for our to have a relationship with Him. But even that, ultimately, it all falls under the glory of God, glorifying God, exalting Him, 
seeing him and acknowledging him for who he is and spreading his fame and spreading his glory to others. And so all the way back even to the time of the Exodus and the Egyptian captivity and the contention with the Pharaoh, the king, we're told in Romans 9.17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, the whole reason that there was an exodus, the whole reason that God got involved in the lives of a bunch of slaves against the tyranny of a Pharaoh is for his own glory and for his own fame. And when you look at that in the broad general context of Scripture, that's not because God is some kind of egomaniac. It's because God is the most glorious, the most supreme, the most excellent, the highest good, the the most wonderful treasure that there is. And it serves us well for God to be in that place because he rightly is. And so everything that happens, happens to his glory. There was a lot of horrendous stuff that happened around Pharaoh and the treatment of the Hebrews for all those years. But ultimately, it was providing a backdrop for God to come, uh, insert himself into the narrative, and display his glory. Um, We're told in Romans 15, For I tell you that Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. See, the redemption story not only moved to the point where the Messiah comes, dies in atoning death, uh, pays for our sins, and allows the covenant people, the Jews, an opportunity for forgiveness and right relationship with God. He also does that for everyone else, for all the Gentiles, for all the non-Jews. So that the world can look on to anyone that has accepted this mercy of God and see, oh, If God saves somebody like him, he truly is merciful. And it spreads his glory and his fame. Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die unto the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. It's all about God. And as big as your circumstances get, as big as the situations seem that are pressing in upon you, it's still not about you. It's all about Him. And He is and will be at work around those circumstances and around those situations in ways that don't always make us happy, don't always bring us joy or pleasure, but ultimately bring glory and honor to Him. And in the ultimate sense, We are in the best place when He is being glorified. Even if our personal circumstances are hard in those momentary, as Paul would say, momentary afflictions. Let me uh, finally uh, get to this from 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, the, the price of the cross, Christ dying for us. So glorify God in your body. 
Again, you guys have been doing a lot of Old Testament reading over these last uh, few weeks. You're going to be uh, reading more about temple stuff this week. The temple seems to always, you know, uh, have a prominent place in the narrative of God's involvement with people throughout uh, the ages. And that's because the temple became kind of a centerpiece for God's glory. And when Solomon constructs his temple... And it's got all this gold and all this silver and the finest woods and all that kind of thing. It's all about being in awe of God. And of course, that temple gets torn down and, and destroyed in a battle. And now we're going to be uh, reading about the rebuilding of a second temple. But friends, by the time you get to the New Testament and you get to the time of Jesus... He's going to be talking about a different kind of temple. Even though he's standing in the presence of an awesome physical structure, he says, but here's what you've got to understand. You're the temple. It's not so much about this building anymore. We're going into a new day. Now it's about your life. And I want to inhabit your life. And I want to be glorified in your life. Your body is where I'm going to reside on this planet so that wherever you are, there I am. So live in that kind of way. Live as unto the Lord. And if the time comes for you to die, then die as unto the Lord. Now, all that to say this. Everything that we're going to be reading about over the next couple of weeks around this rebuilding of the temple and reestablishing life in Jerusalem and so on like that can be a direct parallel to the life that God is looking to build in you. So every time you're reading about all the construction stuff that goes into the temple and we're going to bring in these kinds of materials and these kinds of precious items and so on like that, think your life. And all the investment and energy and time and ingenuity and so on that goes into making this edifice, think about your life. This is what God is doing with you. To his glory. Now, let me give you some quick history. So that, uh, because some of you are going to be reading about this all week in our reading the Bible through plan, and I want you to get lost in there. So you are aware to this point that uh, Jerusalem got conquered by the Babylonians, and Babylon became the world power of its day. Uh, Jews were exported, they were exiled from Jerusalem into Babylon where they were living as servants and so on. And then along comes another power, Persia. And that's where we are now in our readings. And Persia comes in and conquers the Babylonians, sets the Jews free, and under that first uh, king, Cyrus, allows Jews to return back to Jerusalem. And they go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their lives and rebuild the temple. You with me? So, real quickly, here's uh, some stuff uh, that has been transpiring that you'll want to remember. So, Babylon begins to attack Jerusalem around 605 B.C. Uh, that first exportation happens then. That was Daniel and those companions that got taken to Babylonia. Then in 587, Jerusalem is totally destroyed. The temple is totally destroyed. Another deportation of Jews to Babylon. In 539, the Persians then conquer Babylon under Cyrus. And in 536, Cyrus begins to let Jews come back 
to Jerusalem, and they do so under the leadership of Zerubbabel. You're going to read a lot about Zerubbabel this week. It's a cool name, Zerubbabel. Okay. And then in 520, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah began to come on the scene. And I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. But there was a lot of opposition to, to rebuilding the temple. And Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene to encourage the people to, to persevere in the marathon of what they're doing. And in 515, that temple gets rebuilt. You're going, well, that took a long time. Yeah, it did. There was a lot of interruptions. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, in the middle of all this, there's a whole side story that we'll get to next week. And that is around Esther. And between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra happens all the story of Esther. It's not in Ezra's book. It's in Esther's book. And you will never know it just by reading Ezra, but just in the timeline it happens between those two chapters. And in 465, Ezra and Nehemiah, who have been in Babylonia, now come back to Jerusalem. And Ezra gives attention to the spiritual reformation, the, uh, bringing back the word of God to the people's lives and so on. Nehemiah, of course, uh, begins addressing the walls around the city. It all is short-lived, so that by the time you get to 167, and now I'm getting way ahead of where we are, but just to let you know where we're headed, by the time we get to 167 and the world is under Greek rule at that point, uh, the temple is once again destroyed by Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, that gets us into the whole Maccabean story, and, and that'll be coming. And a guy comes on the scene around 20 B.C. by the name of Herod, beginning to ring some bells, and he starts building a third temple. And that is the temple that is present in the day of Jesus. And it's short-lived as well. For after Jesus is crucified just a few years later, around A.D. 70, the Romans, who have now come to power, will destroy that temple. And there is no temple there today. Okay, history. You ready? Let's open up the scriptures to Ezra chapter 4, and uh, we'll begin to see what God wants to say to us about this week. Now, here's what's going to happen. The people have been set free by Cyrus. The Bible makes it clear Cyrus, who does not know God, is God's tool. He's God's vessel to set his people free. The people return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the cities around Jerusalem, begin to rebuild their life there, begin to rebuild the temple. And guess what? There is a lot of opposition. Now, there's a group just the north of them that used to be Israel that had been conquered by the Assyrians way back in 722. And they had been all mixed up in their faith with local religions. And they now began to be a people group called Samaritans. And these are the people that by the time you get to the day of Jesus will be in such contentious state with Jews. Because they're kind of Jewish, but they're kind of pagan. And they totally messed up the whole faith and experience of God. And when these Jews come back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild their lives and rebuild the temple, these Samaritans begin to come on the scene and they interfere with it all. 
And what we're going to see is that the Jews had to persevere, had to press through the opposition in order to accomplish their mission. Now, what did I ask you to think about when we started talking about the temple? Your life. Friends, there is opposition to you building the life that God has designed for you to build. There are forces, invisible mostly, but also visible, that you contend with to build a holy, godly, glorifying to the Lord life. So keep running it through that grid as you look at what happens. How do these Jews who have been in captivity all these years, and now they're back to building the temple, their lives, how do they persevere through that? Well, first thing I want you to see is that they rebuff syncretism. You go, what, what? let me explain it in just a minute. First, let's look at it. Ezra chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him forever since the days of Ershadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, a priest, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. You know what syncretism is? Syncretism is when you take a little bit of a variety of faiths and beliefs and you mash it all up together and you have something altogether different. That's syncretism. And so you take a little of... Jewish faith, and you mix it in with a little Babylonian faith, and you mix it in with a little Assyrian faith, and you mix it in with a little Canaanite faith, and, you know, you get this concoction up, and it's not biblical faith. Now, it's got some God talk in there, and it's got some familiarity with scriptures and with the ways of God, but it's also got all this other stuff overlaid on it, and therefore it is not a legitimate true kind of connection with God. Now, let me, let me just say, friends, I hear this all the time. All the time. So, let me just ask this gently. Do you understand that karma is not biblical Christianity? Do you, do you understand that? Karma is an Eastern way of thinking that says... Depending upon how you live, that kind of energy comes back to you. And so if you live poorly, if you live cruelly, then that kind of stuff comes back on you. And if you live well, then that kind of stuff comes back on you. And I constantly hear people talk karma out of one side of their mouth and Christianity out of the other side of their mouth. And I'm like, which is it? Which do you follow? Some of you send emails to one another 
And in your signature tagline, you've got some kind of ancient Eastern proverbial thought that sounds kind of cool, but it ain't biblical. And when you begin to actually unpack the background and what that means, friends, that's taking your thoughts and taking the direction of your life in a different direction. We could, we could talk about uh, the influences of ancient Chinese sayings and, and Buddhist sayings and uh, so on it goes. And this is going to be all over Ezra. You have to know the book. You have to know who is God, what is God about, what is God trying to do in you and through you? What kind of life is he trying to build with you out of this book? You say, well, why are you holding up your book over the holy books of the other groups? Because I believe our book is right and true and those books are wrong and false. I know. It's not very PC. But listen, if you look at all the other holy books and you look at this book, friends, there is so much disagreement. They cannot all be right. And so these nice altruistic kind of uh, fuzzy feelings about let's just all you know, uh, admit that we're trying to get to the same way and we're taking different paths. And so, friends, that is heresy that will lead you astray. That is a syncretizing of your faith. They don't all lead the same place. They are all vastly, significantly different. If you talk to a, a committed Buddhist or if you talk to a committed Muslim, they'll tell you what those differences are. It's all the people that have a mishmash of little commitment to any of them that think it can all work. A good Muslim will tell you Christians are absolutely categorically wrong. They'll tell you that. And I respect them for that. And I'll tell them that they're wrong. And I've done my homework. They've done their homework. I'm betting my life. You're betting your life on which is true and which is not. And so when these early uh, exiled Jews who are returning, beginning to rebuild their lives, these others who have already syncretized their faith come in, hey, let us help. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were going to infiltrate and bring compromise to the faith of the Jews. And Zerubbabel knew exactly what they were going to do, and he's saying, no way, you're not helping us at all with this. They rebuffed syncretism. See in the second place that they also then began to face their fears. In chapter 4, uh, continuing with verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The opponents began to make it very uncomfortable 
for the Jews to live out their convictions. They turned the surrounding culture in such a way that it became very uncomfortable to overtly live your faith in God. Does that have any sound of resemblance to today? And they made it fearsome for anyone to actually articulate the ways of God. And they bribed counselors, they bribed influential people in the, in the culture, the people who had voice, the people who had prominence, they bribed them to also counsel against them and speak against them. And the powers that be began to oppose the building of something unto God. Are you following me? These early Jews had to face those fears. Persevere. And then see in the third place, they ultimately just had to depend upon God's sovereignty. This was a work that God was doing. They were simply His people doing His will, having to trust on His power. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Adu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them and supporting them. Now, what did Haggai and Zechariah do? Well, you're going to have an opportunity to read their books. Uh, but basically, they just preached the Word of God. They basically just reminded the, the Jews of how big God is, how magnificent, how powerful, how uh, He cannot be opposed, He cannot be thwarted, He cannot be undone. And they began to believe He is who He says He is. He is sovereign and over it all. And so they press forward. Now, at the very end of chapter 4, you'll see that they had actually come to a point where they stopped the work. They stopped the work for 16 years. Because there were so many legalities that the culture had enacted that forbade them to continue to build their lives. Finally, they were able to appeal to the Persians with whom God had been working and Darius begins to read the ancient writings of Cyrus. And he says, "What? these guys have no leg to stand upon. And you know what the Persian king did? He not only ruled in favor of the Jews. Go back to building your temple, just like Cyrus said you could. He then imposed a tax on the Samaritans to pay for it. I'm talking sovereignty. I'm talking to God who is over everything. And we'll see to His purposes being accomplished in His time. Now, 16 years. So you imagine people along the way going, where's God? What, what's happening here? How come the oppression is so strong? How do you persevere? Rebuff syncretism, face your fears, and depend upon God's sovereignty. Now, how do you? Persevere. 
What do you need to persevere about? This life that God is building with you. See, that will bring glory to Him. You need a godly marriage if you're going to be married. You need to be a godly single if you're going to be single. You need to be a godly parent if you're going to have children. You need to be a godly uh, employee or supervisor or CEO or whatever you are in the work world. You've got to be a godly student if you're in that uh, track right now. Whatever it is, it's all about God and Him building something in me and with me and through me to His glory. That's what it's all about. So how do I persevere in that? Well, the first thing is you keep the prize before you. That's what all athletes do. The ancient runner from Marathon to Athens. I've got to get to the king and give him a message. You keep the prize before you. Our prize is God's glory. His fame, His renown, as well as that sense of His pleasure, where someday we stand before Him, well done. I mean, can you imagine God saying to your life when it's been spent, well done? His honor. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I've got to get it all done today. I've got to get some of it done today. I've got to get some of it done tomorrow. I've got to get some of it across this week, and so on it goes. We're told in Philippians 3.13, this is how Paul did it. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize. I keep my eye on the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. You got the prize in sight? The prize is not that promotion. The prize is, if I get that promotion, how might I glorify God? If I don't get that promotion, how might that glorify God? If I get this recognition, how can I glorify God? If I get shunned and ostracized and rejected, how might that glorify God? That's the prize. How do you persevere? Keep training your life. Anybody in here can do a marathon. You'll just have to train. You'll have to set up a way of living that has... The D word involved. Discipline. Disciplining the way you think. Disciplining the way you feel. Friend, you are not a slave to your feelings. You get to make, with God's help, choices about your feelings. Discipline about what happens with your body. 1 Corinthians 9.25, every athlete exercises self-control in how they train their physical body. Yeah. But in all things. You know why a lot of people don't finish a marathon? They train their body. After a while, their mind gets crazy. 
and their mind begins to speak to their feelings, and their feelings don't feel like doing it anymore. And so the one who has disciplined the thinking, disciplined the feelings, and disciplined the body is the one who can persevere. And then, in the third place, keep first things first. What are the first things? Now listen, we are surrounded by a lot of good stuff. What are the good things that you would let go of to hold on to the best things, to hold on to the first things? It might be really good to have this little involvement or to do this project or to hang with these people or what. See, we're not even talking about the bad stuff right now. What about the good stuff that I've also got to let go of so that I can hang on to the first things? This is the way the writer of the Hebrews said it in Hebrews 12. Lay aside every weight. That's not sin. Because then he goes on to say, and lay aside sin. If I'm going to persevere, run well, cross the finish line, hear well done, all to His glory, then I lay aside not only sin, but I lay aside the weights, the good stuff, the things that can hinder me and slow me down from all that God is doing with me. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So will you. Will you keep the prize before you? Will you keep training your life? Will you keep first things first? You see, this is how much God cares about you. He has entrusted all of this bundle of potential to you. It's called your life. He's entrusted all that to you. You're a steward of it. It's His, but He's entrusting it to you. How are you going to use that one and only life? You're going to build that temple? You're going to persevere? You're going to glorify, honor? What's in the way? What do you need to let go of? Where do you need to train? How do you need to press on? And here's what's going to happen over these next few minutes. As we were preparing for today, it just seemed like in the appointment of God that uh, He wanted to dispense some grace and some blessing to you. And so in just a few moments, I'm going to pray for you. And after I pray for you, our elders and their wives are going to go to the back wall right under the cross. They're going to be back there to pray with anybody that just has a need for a specific prayer about how God's working in your life to build this life to His glory. And for those of us that are still in our seat, we'll have a moment of musical reflection. That'll be a free time. Anytime you want to go and get prayed for, they'll be there to pray for you. All right? Just a few moments of allowing God to bring some grace and some blessing to you to persevere. Let me pray for you. So, Father, thank you for this time where we've been able to talk about these weighty things. Thanks for this appointment. We just sense that as we bring our tired, distracted, discouraged selves to you, 
that you want to empower, that you want to encourage, that you want to refocus, that you want to help. And so, in these moments, we receive the blessings you intend to dispense. In Christ's name.